Hey, girlfriend. It's time for Can We Just Talk About This? Where real talk meets real life in the world of fitness and health during perimenopause. I'm nutrition, strength, and hormone coach Corey Jackson, and I'm chatting with my brilliant friend, coach and exercise physiologist Dr. Mandy Para. Whether you're in your 50s like me or your 30s like Mandy, we're here to navigate the ever-evolving journey of life, motherhood, and perimenopause together. So pull up a seat, get comfy, and let's talk about this. Hey there, girlfriend. We talked in depth about the normal premenopausal menstrual cycle on Monday and foreshadowed that so much changes in perimenopause as the cycle winds down. I think that's obvious. (laughs) And I also think that's an important place to start understanding your body, your hormones, and your menopause transition. Because the only way to recognize that things are changing is to truly be able to wrap your arms around your baseline. After all, we don't know if something is different if we don't know what's normal, am I right? So in that spirit, I wanted to share a general timeline, so to speak, of potential symptoms of the menopause transition. And there are a lot of them, at least 34, many of which people have made it through to the other side are still surprised to learn about. Seriously, I have conversations almost daily with women telling me about this strange experience or that odd thing that happened in which I invariably say, oh yeah, that's one of the symptoms. And there is a reasonably predictable progression of symptoms. So even if you don't experience them all, which you probably won't, there are a few that we all experience to some degree, telltale signs that the shift is beginning. Between then, the beginning, and the 12-month anniversary of your last period, that point in time known as menopause, Your hormone flux and your body's reactions to it can range from just a blip on your radar, barely shaking you into realization, to an all-out, life-altering assault. Everyone has their own menopause type, and Dr. Heather Hirsch talks about this in her newest book, and I'll link to that in the show notes because it's an excellent resource. But anyway, knowing what the symptoms of this transition are can be a comforting sanity check, which is why I wanted to have this solo chat with you, just you and me, girlfriend. So let's start from the beginning. And I've organized the symptoms into four groups, with the first being literally the beginning. Then we'll move to mental health, the psychological signs of how estrogen decline impacts our brains. Third, we'll talk about more physical results of that brain impact. Fourth, we'll discuss some of the metabolic impacts of this hormone flux. And finally, we'll move outward to skin and tissue changes. It may sound like a lot, and it is, so buckle up. Let me grab my script here. Okay, the very first thing you will likely notice is irregular periods, and that can be in the quality of the period or the length, the duration of the period. That means basically your menses, the time that you're bleeding. It can go from five to six days as a typical period to shorter. Sometimes it'll get really heavy. I'm sure you've heard of the infamous murder scene period where you just bleed a lot 
And it can also get lighter in duration or lighter in consistency as well. Um, And that can happen as early as your mid to late 30s. So while this is a resource for you, if you're already in perimenopause and you already know about it, this is also a good resource to share with younger women. If you have women in your life that you have influence over, daughters, daughters-in-law, significant others of your children or your sons, if you have influence on younger women, I would love it if you would share this with them. A little heads up for any of them is going to be such a great opportunity to influence good health for them. And I'll say it again, as I've said before, that midlife women can be the world's most impactful health and fitness influencer there is. And if you want to really help a young woman to make a big change in her life, that's a good way to do it. So anyway, At about 35, you may start noticing these changes in your cycle. Again, if you don't know what your baseline is, if you don't know what your cycle really looks like, then you're not going to notice that it's changing. That's why it's really important to track your cycle. And there are so many ways to do that now with all of the easy to use apps. I use Clue and have for a long time. It's the oldest. It's kind of the old matron in the cycle tracking space. And it works really well. No complaints there. First, progesterone starts to decline. And that's something you'll probably notice in your 30s. And that's part of why your period is changing in length. And your cycle is going to change in length as well. Um, What happens with the cycle is that um, your typical 28 to 36 day cycle starts changing. And we talked on Monday about how it's typically 28 to 36 days or whatever. And um, your ovulation is right in the middle. So ovulation is kind of like this dividing point between the two weeks. You have your follicular phase before ovulation and the luteal phase after ovulation. Now, as progesterone declines, which is the dominant sex hormone in the luteal phase, the signal for ovulation is uh, to increase progesterone secretion. And if progesterone is declining, it's not going to just immediately start being secreted. And therefore, the luteal phase comes later or ovulation comes later. And so you have kind of this accordioning effect of the cycle. So in other words, what's happening is the estrogen dominant follicular phase gets a little bit longer, just waiting for its cue for progesterone to come in and make its big debut for the month. So that accordion effect kind of happens. Sometimes as progesterone is waning and estrogen is more dominant and the follicular phase will be three weeks or even four weeks. And then um, progesterone will say, hey, wait a minute, it's my turn. And then ovulation happens and you have a two-week luteal phase. Now, it sometimes comes in early because It doesn't know, progesterone doesn't really know when she wants to take the stage whenever she's in this flux. So sometimes the follicular phase is one week or one and a half weeks. It's very unpredictable. The changes of this period and then the changes of the cycle are some of the first symptoms. Obviously, this can have a bit of an impact on brain health because As progesterone starts to decline and estrogen ramps up, we become slightly estrogen dominant. 
And then estrogen starts to, to decline because none of these hormones are inexhaustible. Anyway, you start noticing the changes in um, the way estrogen impacts your brain, uh, just in the way you start experiencing mental health changes. One of the first things that people tend to notice is anxiety. And if you have experienced anxiety or depression and any other time in your life, you will probably have a ramped up anxiety or depression response now in perimenopause. They used to think it was related mainly to postpartum depression, but since they have decided that it is just any depressive event. So if you have had any kind of clinical or chemical depression at any time in your life, then you are likely to be impacted by depressive symptoms during your perimenopause, more so than someone who has not been impacted by that experience. So anxiety and depression tend to be changes that you'll experience. Even if you had it under control or it was medicated, you might see that your prescription needs to be changed and tinkered a little bit with. Along with that can come this really strange, unusual hesitation or unexplainable fear. Say you are a mountain biker and you are used to taking downhills quickly and not hesitating, not being afraid of it. None of this can rattle you. In fact, you really thrive on that adventure. And then suddenly you crest that hill and you slam on the brakes because you can't imagine going down it without toppling head over handlebars. That is an unexplained hesitation. Women who have, say, done CrossFit for years and they're used to doing those box jumps or they're used to chaining together the kipping pull-ups, those things can cause this unexplained hesitation. That box can suddenly go from one and a half feet or whatever height you're used to, to five feet. And you don't feel like there's any way that you can jump it because even though you did it yesterday, suddenly you hesitate because surely you're not able to do that. And if you don't understand what's going on, look to your cycle and see that this is probably an impact on your brain by this waning estrogen. Because of that, a lot of women experience this feeling like they're losing themselves, like they're losing their identity, especially if you really have developed a personality, a community, or an identity around a sport, if suddenly you can't do your sport or you're afraid for unexplained reasons to do your sport, it's real easy to kind of lose your identity and to question yourself. That can lead to diminished self-confidence in your sport. And then it kind of makes sense that you end up having all of these strange responses like mood changes mood swings, low mood, just this flat affect, you know, the things that meant something to you before, suddenly they don't. You just, you're kind of like, well, whatever. The things that used to spark joy just kind of get a meh or a yawn. The things that made colors come alive in your sight are everything is just kind of gray or sepia toned. If these are things that you're noticing and you aren't leveraging hormone replacement therapy, if you're not replacing your hormones, um, that might be something you want to consider talking to your doctor about. There really is no reason to live through a colorless life. You have the opportunity to help yourself there. 
You're going to see a lot of help with a lot of these changes in mood if you do take advantage of hormone replacement therapy. It is a dialing in process and it takes about six to eight to even 12 months to really find your sweet spot. And then when you found it, especially if you start early, you're probably going to have to change it again, but it's definitely worth it. Another thing that you might notice is brain fog. It's up to 60% of women report some kind of cognitive changes in perimenopause. I've talked very openly for um, a few years about this brain fog impact on my life. Um, my husband says it is very clear <laughs> when he's trying to have a conversation with me about business or science or technical things when I am having a bad brain fog day. He has developed patience like a saint living with me, <laughs> and I'm really grateful. But it is, it's definitely something that is hard to overcome. Mandy has mentioned that having grace in conversation for people is super important because, you know, it's not just women in our demographic that experience brain fog or struggle to make the sentence or to find the word. It is people in general. There are days that it is really hard to string these words together. And if we can just have grace for people and if everyone else can have grace because we told them that this is what we're going through, because they understand and can expect this from us, then it's going to be a lot easier to get through these things. So we talked a couple of weeks ago about not just extending grace to others, but also having enough humility to be able to express where you are so they can give it back to you. And it's a super important part of going through the menopause transition. And it's a major foundation of can we just talk about this? Because if you don't tell people what's going on with you, if you don't talk about it, I mean, we're like more than half of the population women are and more than half of the population are going to go through this menopause transition. So we need to be able to share with people what we're going through so that they know what to expect from us and from people that are coming up behind us, women that are coming up behind us into this menopause transition. So that's brain fog. 60% of us are going through brain fog. Uh, and I am chief among us, girlfriend, because it is, it is definitely one of my major symptoms. You might also notice that you're less resilient to stress. I know I do. And I've talked openly about that in the last few episodes. Something that you need to do to help with this is to get a real firm grip on your self-care habits and really prioritize that. It is so easy as women in such a busy, fast-paced life when we are prioritizing career right alongside family. It is so easy to let our own self-care go on the back burner. It just gets deprioritized. It gets moved down the list. You know, we're nurturers. We are goal-getters. We do great things. We are really building amazing lives. And we won't settle for second best. And we're also doing that for our family. So it's just, it's human nature to um, make sure that we're checking off all the things, all of the tasks on the to-do list. And we're making sure we're getting all of these life mile markers. It's so easy to let just regular breath work or time to reflect or a bedtime routine or even regular body work, which is so important for our health. It's easy to let that go to the wayside. And then suddenly we wake up one day realizing we're not sleeping well. We're walking around in a fog of stress. 
we've let, allowed our cortisol response to get way out of control and starts impacting our bodies. Don't let that happen. I think that the alarm bells start going off when all of a sudden the things that shouldn't impact you as stress, you should be able to be flexible with this, or at least you were 10 years ago, you're able to roll with the punches. Suddenly these are things that are making you cower in the corner. That's an alarm bell. You need to recognize it as it is and just take a time out. Take some time for you. Have grace for yourself so that you can have more grace for others. Let's move on to the physical impacts of the brain change. Start with difficulty sleeping. Sleep disruptions in perimenopause is a chief complaint. And I think it's something that so many of these things flow from. So you might wonder why I put it third rather than first, but it's important to recognize that it's coming from most likely one of two places, either this brain impact that is actually making it physically difficult for your body and your brain to regenerate through sleep, sleep that used to work, or behavioral impacts. And that can come also from the brain impacts. And what I mean by that is, do you have a nighttime routine? Do you have a shutdown routine? Do you get ready for bed or do you just fall into bed? When we're children, our parents made sure that we had a routine. We would do our homework. We would play. We would have dinner together, maybe watch a little bit of TV. Then we would have a bath. We would wash our face. We'd put on our pajamas. We'd brush our teeth. We'd have a story, thin lights out. And then we asked for a water or two. <laughs> I, I remember that from my kids more than I do from me. I'm a little closer to raising children than being a child. But all of those things are signals to the brain to start this shutdown routine and then to enter into a deep sleep. It's a signal for serotonin to become melatonin to really allow for sleep pressure to take over in the brain. And if we don't have that as adults, because we're too busy providing it for children, then the brain gets kind of tangled. There are no signals to, to calm down. If we fall asleep as soon as our heads hit the pillow, then that's a sign that something's not quite right with our shutdown routine, as much as not being able to sleep for hours. So it's really important to make sure that you have a nice nighttime wind down. We talked about that in the Big Rocks episode. Sleep is so imperative. And that's something that I've prioritized for myself and for my family for a long time. And even still, I struggle with sleep. Insomnia, the inability to fall off or early waking and un being unable to go back to sleep. And then even disrupted sleep that doesn't wake you up enough. It's nothing. It is nothing to wake up 10, 15, 20 times a night but not quite enough to really come to the surface of consciousness and to remember that you were woken up, but then still feel like you've been running a marathon all night long when you wake up in the morning. That's disrupted sleep. If you're waking up without any energy at all, then you're probably experiencing this unconscious or subconscious disruption in your sleep. If you have unexplained fatigue or you're more easily winded during exercise, or you're having a harder time regulating your temperature when exercising outside, all of these things can be rooted in the brain and in disrupted sleep. 
You might also notice a diminished cardio capacity that goes with this unexplained fatigue. Regular runners report their speed going way down, but not just their speed going down. It feels like they're running through molasses because they have this breathless response even before their heart rate hits its peak. They're breathless and their feet feel like cement and they're going a lot slower than they used to. And then they look at their heart rate monitor and they're about 20 beats below their typical heart rate. That's pretty common. That's part of why it's good to dial back on the long runs and start adding more like sprint intervals, short bursts of speed, and then walk or fully recover even by sitting and then do it again. We also experience something called vasomotor symptoms. These are your hot flashes or VMS that can impact you at night. That's the infamous night sweats where you wake up in a puddle of sweat and you have to change your sheets and your pajamas. Now, I experienced these in my 30s when I probably was experiencing estrogen dominance after my bodybuilding competitions and during times of extreme exercise and extreme dieting. What I would do is I would just make my husband scoot over so I didn't have to sleep in the puddle. (laughs) It was just a, you know, an impromptu snuggle session. I don't know. Hot flashes happen during the day. Night sweats happen at night. I have had probably, I can count on all my fingers and all my toes, the numbers, number of hot flashes I've had in my entire perimenopause experience. I don't necessarily break out in a sweat. Sometimes I do, but I I can feel this radiating heat starting from my back and wrapping around my core. Women do experience just this outbreak of sweat and it increases their heart rate and their breathing. And then they notice that they look like they've been running a marathon and they haven't been. Mandy was sharing with me um, a doctor, and I will link this in the show notes because I don't remember this doctor's name right now, but she wrote the period repair manual, and she was talking to a group of male residents, and she started having a hot flash. And so she wanted to explain why her face was turning red and why she started sweating. She goes, oh my gosh, I'm having a hot flash. And there was this, this weird male societal response to it. Her residents, who were supposed to be her students in these rounds, kind of looked at her like, ew, overshare, TMI, why are you telling us you're having a hot flash? And she immediately stopped them in an educational, instructional setting and said, you're going to be treating women in my age group. You need to know what this is. How dare you say ew? (laughs) Again, can we just talk about this? We have to make people aware. So I'm chasing rabbits. I hope you don't mind. This is the way a conversation with me goes. (laughs) On the flip side of the hot flash can be a cold flash. Your hypothalamus, like I mentioned before, is your body's thermostat. And it's kind of going up and down. What's happening under the hood is you have these error bars, so to speak. You have this temperature average. This is the sweet spot and it can range. You can get to a certain point of heat and a certain point of cold and it's okay. But as estrogen is not binding the receptors on the hypothalamus, those tolerance bars narrow and your brain thinks that your core temperature needs to be regulated much more tightly. And if your brain 
interprets that your core temperature has gone outside of those tolerance bars, that it has arbitrarily shrunk, then it's going to try to shed that heat by making you sweat, by getting rid of it through your fingers, through your hair, through the sweat, and it's going to make you want to shed your clothes. <laughs> and so make sure you're wearing layers, ladies. Whenever you have that quick shedding of heat, then you have this strange quick response of, oh no, I've shed too much heat. It's time to have a cold flash. That is just your hypothalamus trying to regulate your temperature without the help of estrogen binding its receptors. It runs a little amok. It gets a little crazy. There is some chaos involved. And this can be life altering. I do not want to belittle or diminish of the experience of hot flashes. Just because I don't have them that often doesn't mean that they're not a bad thing. It's an embarrassing situation in work and in life. And if you're having trouble with it, one of the best things you can do is talk to your doctor again about hormone replacement therapy. There are other options as well. If you are not a candidate for hormone replacement therapy, that I don't want you to be scared off from. I don't necessarily think that birth control is the best way to treat the hormone flux of the menopause transition. If you do have a concern of pregnancy and you want to protect against that, then maybe birth control is the way to go. If you are not a candidate for hormone replacement therapy, there are certain low-dose antidepressants that also work on vasomotor symptoms. And so don't be scared away. If your doctor throws up the antidepressant word, don't throw up a wall. I want you to think about it and to research it yourself and find out if this is the right answer for you. Again, it is a dialing in, finding what really works for your menopause type. It's a process. So be patient, have grace and find those things, but it is totally worth it because I mean, no one's got time for this. You don't need to suffer. You don't need to be embarrassed. Just you know, see what you can do to make yourself comfortable. Another part of the vasomotor symptoms, another strange, obscure symptom is the electric shocks. I've experienced them before. Now, recall if you can, this experience of having someone pull out in front of you in traffic, you're accelerating and changing into the fast lane and someone cuts you off and you have this immediate adrenaline dump in your stomach and you start shaking and you're in, you can feel it kind of go down your arms. I've had that just sitting still reading a book or watching television. And that is one of these vasomotor symptoms called electric shocks. Others have described it as like somebody is snapping a rubber band around your wrist or tapping your fingers. It's really weird <laughs> and it's really hard to explain or describe the sensation. But if you're having one of those sensations in your limbs, that's obviously from inside, you probably rest assured this is part of the menopause symptom suite. Now let's move on to metabolic changes. With the decrease of estrogen in your system, insulin resistance kind of can, Mandy's talked about the negative feedback loops and the positive feedback loops of the hormones. And basically that means that one hormone opposes the other and they keep each other in balance. Estrogen opposes insulin. So as estrogen declines, insulin is unopposed. And when we release more insulin than the body needs, then the insulin receptors are desensitized to the signal. 
And so they don't work as well. And really what's going on is the receptors stay deep in the muscle so your body doesn't absorb insulin, which is um, insulin is attaching to sugar in the blood to bring it into the muscle to create your glycogen stores. The sugar molecule is kind of spiky and it can cause trouble. It has to be sequestered somewhere. So the body puts it away and it stores it in the fat cells and the adipose tissue to make your body more insulin sensitive. And meal timing, nutrient timing, and exercise are very important. So exercise literally signals the receptors to move to the muscle wall, and then insulin can bring glucose and protein along with it into the muscle to begin repair work. That insulin resistance is part of how we end up with the belly fat in perimenopause. And something else about belly fat is it synthesizes and secretes its own estrogen. The problem with it, it is not estradiol, which is our superpower positive estrogen. It's estrone. And that can be more of a negative impacting estrogen. And there are all of the other health concerns that come with extra abdominal fat. Another metabolic impact, muscle protein synthesis is decreased. Muscle protein synthesis is the way our body lays down skeletal muscle. Since that's naturally decreased, our ability to maintain skeletal muscle just by living is compromised. So we need to make sure we give it that lifestyle input or that external signal of lifting weights and strengthening our body, making sure we are actively encouraging muscle protein synthesis by not only lifting weights and exercising, but giving our body adequate building blocks in protein in our diet. So that is the metabolic impacts of the estrogen decline. Now, most of these things that I have described can be controlled either pharmaceutically or with lifestyle. And we can't necessarily control what our hormones are doing, but if our hormones are changing their cascade and their flux in a body that has dialed in some of these lifestyle and pharmacy things, then the symptoms are much less pronounced. So we have talked about the very beginning. We've talked about the uh, psychological impacts. We've talked about the physical impacts of the brain changes and the metabolic impacts of estrogen decline. Now let's move on to skin and tissue changes because estrogen tends to not only act as a antioxidant by protecting all of our organ systems, including the skin. It also is a moisturizer and it helps keep things plump and moist. And whenever we don't have as much estrogen, that's when things start changing. Your skin dries out, your skin also kind of deep plumps. And that's when, when the wrinkles start happening, you might have experienced extra dryness of skin you might experience extra oiliness. Um, one of those two, adult acne is also a thing. I've heard people say, it's just not fair. I'm having hot flashes and I'm breaking out like a teenager. <laughs> so those kinds of things are a response to the changes in estrogen. You might experience scaly patches. If you've had eczema or psoriasis, that might increase. I remember a couple of years ago, whenever perimenopause was no longer something I could deny, 
the scaly patch pop up on my throat, right on my neck. It would itch and it would burn and it would turn colors. And then whenever it was finished reacting like a rash, then it would scale up. It was like I had a lizard neck. It was not attractive. But and not only that, it wasn't comfortable, but it did pass. It just felt like suddenly my skin was incredibly sensitive to so many different things. And that might be something you notice as well, extra sensitivity. Suddenly your products don't work as well. And you just, you have to try different products. There's a line called Fiera, and I'll link that in the show notes as well, that is formulated specifically for maturing skin. So going from the face and the body skin to below the belt, you probably are experiencing vaginal dryness or pain. And it's not, it is pain during sex, during intercourse, but not necessarily just pain during intercourse. Ladies that are cyclists know those saddle muscles and that sensitive tissue can really get disrupted and make your bike rides very difficult. Your time in the saddle, it becomes harder. What's going on is that skin is thinning. And not only is it thinning, but you are no longer able to produce your own internal moisture as well because you don't have estrogen on board like you did before. One of the biggest benefits of hormone replacement therapy is to help you to plump up your vaginal skin and to begin producing your own internal moisture again. But there are other products as well. One of my favorite products is made by a company called Rosebud Woman. And it is called the Honor Everyday Balm. It's just this beautiful emollient cream. It's really more of a balm, (laughs) like it's called. It's hyaluronic acid, which is really great for plumping up those tissues. And that's also really good to use on your face. Not necessarily the same product, (laughs) but hyaluronic acid is really good for aging skin. It helps to moisturize and just zap it full of moisture. I will link that in the show notes on our everyday balm. You might notice that you're having recurring UTIs, recurring yeast infections, again, hormone replacement therapy, and also hydrating. Now, as an interesting cause of recurring UTIs might be that you notice you're not as thirsty as you used to be. So you're not naturally drawn to drink as much water. Therefore, you are becoming more dehydrated without even realizing it. That can lead to urinary tract infections. Make sure you're pushing water. Make sure you're drinking at least half of your body weight in ounces and likely more if you're active, likely more if you want to lose weight. That will help to control those UTIs as well as the muscle stiffness and the tension um, that can come with this time. It's really a fascinating response. But again, because every single system has uh, estrogen receptors, including your musculoskeletal system, your tissues can become more prone to endocrine changes or hormone changes. Um, So you might notice that you have more tension in your neck or in your shoulders, or you have injuries that are harder to get past and they're just overuse injuries. And mobility practice and body work become paramount in managing that. You might notice a diminished muscle support in the core, in the pelvic floor, and in the feet. Um, that again is that lack of estrogen. 
Um, hair might be thinning, nail might be thinning, joint pain. Oh, joint pain. That is one of the worst. So, um, just recognize that these are parts of the, um, estrogen response. And, um, the thing that can mitigate this is a good mobility practice and making sure that you don't have muscular imbalances. You have at least two muscles that work on a joint, one that helps it to open and the other one that helps it to close. They work in opposition to each other. Oftentimes left to their own devices, one of those muscles is going to be stronger or tighter than the other, making the other one looser or weaker. And those muscular imbalances can cause pain, not only around the joint and in the joint, but in the muscles around that joint. And that, ladies, might not have painted a very pretty picture. It probably feels like a bunch of chaos. And you might wake up each morning going, what fresh hell is this? I know I have. But the reason I find it important to have this roadmap of symptoms is it helps to check that am I crazy response. No, you're not crazy. You're normal. You're going through a menopause transition that every one of us, if we are lucky enough to live this long, are going to go through. We're advancing to another stage of life where we don't have to worry about birth control. We don't have to worry about tampons or protection. We can wear white any time of the year, any time of the month. It should be a time of freedom. It should be a time of wisdom. It should be a time of releasing yourself from concern about what others think of us and giving us the opportunity to walk in our confidence and in being truly powerful and comfortable in who we are. But it can get so confusing and so uncomfortable if we don't leverage the supports that are available to us. It is definitely a tool to use hormone replacement therapy. I know I've gone there uh, several times in this chat, and I'll go there several times again. If you don't have a medical reason to not leverage HRT, why aren't you? And if you don't need it, if you are one of those souls, if you're one of those women that has had very minimal impact from these symptoms and their hormones have wound down in a way that did not cause too much discomfort. Great. You don't have to replace your hormones. It is totally your choice. And you are totally empowered to, to face this transition the way it empowers you. And that is the roadmap. Now, the reason that it is important to know what your baseline is so that you know when this is coming. I'm here for you, girlfriend. Whenever you have any questions or concerns or you're wondering, am I crazy or is this part of menopause? Feel free to reach out and I will, I will chat with you. I will make any recommendations that I have discovered in my research or in my journey through this myself. You are not alone. You are surrounded by other women in your circles, in your life, in the world that are going through this at the same time. And you are going to get to the other side and be able to extend a hand behind you and help those women that are approaching the transition to go through it with grace, 
to go through it with empowerment, to go through it with knowledge so that they don't feel like they're lost as well. Thank you so much for talking with me about this. Thanks so much for talking about it with me. I sure needed the time we spent together, and I hope it left you feeling good, too. If you enjoyed the episode, please like, subscribe, and share it with your friends to bring other girlfriends into the circle. And hey, let's do it again next week. Episodes drop every Monday, and you might even find a quick chat Friday every now and then. <laughs>